Hey now. What's happening, everybody? Hopefully everybody had a great week. Timeless podcast. Coming in hot. We've got, this week, we've got a book review for you. I haven't done a book in a while, so... I thought, probably time for a book. So, this week, our book, our timeless book of the week is The Score Takes Care of Itself by Bill Walsh, My Philosophy of Leadership. Uh, So Bill Walsh, who I mentioned last week, is the... If you're a sports fan, especially a football fan, you know who he is. But legendary coach of the San Francisco 49ers, one of the best coaches to, uh, one of the best men to ever wear a headset on an NFL sideline. Um, Also coached at Stanford. Uh, Most known for his work with the 49ers. And uh, this is one of the, one of the better uh, leadership books that I've read. And, you know, he's talking, he, it's his philosophy of leadership talking about, you know, what he applied to his football team. But, uh, but in reality, I mean, this, the, the stuff that's in this book can apply to, to anywhere. If you're in a leadership position, regardless of what it is, uh, or where it is, the size of your team, whatever, uh, the stuff in this book will apply. So really, really great book. I really encourage everybody to go pick it up. I, uh, heard of, obviously I I knew who Bill Walsh was. Um, but I, I heard of this book from the Ryan holiday monthly, uh, book list newsletter. Um, and I don't know Ryan, I know I've mentioned him on this podcast before, but that's where I get a lot of my book recommendations. If you're, uh, if you're looking for book recommendations, um, and he's the author of obstacle is the way, uh, ego is the enemy, uh, just came out, uh, daily stoic just came out with a couple new books, perennial seller and daily stoic journal, which I have not read yet, but I will definitely be picking those up at some point. But anyway, that's where I first, latched onto this book and it is fantastic. It really is a fantastic book. And uh I was going over my notes from when I initially read this. I read this a while back um and was going over my the notes and passages and stuff that I had marked and ended up going and taking a lot of new notes and finding stuff that I had kind of glanced over the uh, the first time that I had read this. So, which a lot of times happens, you know, when you're going through a uh, a book for the second time, you pick up a lot more than you did on the first. So, without further ado... Let's 
get in to the book. All right, so first, first passage. This is his five do's for getting back into the game. He goes, do expect defeat. It's a given when the stakes are high and the competition is working ferociously to beat you. If you're surprised when it happens, you're dreaming, and dreamers don't last long. So, you know, when you're going into a competition or any endeavor, you got to understand that defeat is a possibility. Obviously, you don't want that, but, you know, don't be naive and think that, think that it's not going to happen, you know, because that's, that's going to be a part of any competitive endeavor is defeat. All right, number two. Do force yourself to stop looking backward and dwelling on professional train wreck you have just been in. It's mental quicksand. So if you do lose, you know, don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. Do allow yourself appropriate recovery grieving time. You've been knocked senseless. Give yourself a little time to recuperate. A key word here is little. Don't let it drag on. So that kind of plays off the, bat, the last uh, point where, you know, you don't want to look back on the past and all your defeats, but, you know, you do want to give yourself a little time to sort of recuperate. Number four, do tell yourself, I am going to stand and fight again with the knowledge that often when things are at their worst, you're closer than you can imagine to success. Our Super Bowl victory arrived less than 16 months after my train wreck in Miami. So, you know, a lot of times you're closer than you think. You just got to keep plugging forward. Like when we mentioned in last week's show, you know, he went 2-14 two and, two and 14 in his first year uh, as coach of the 49ers. And then, boom, two years later, Super Bowl champions. Do begin, number five, do begin planning for your next serious encounter. The smallest steps, plans, move you forward on the road to recovery. Focus on the fix. So, you know, that goes kind of with what we talk about a lot. You win, you win or you learn. When you lose, you learn. Learn from and move forward. And then his five don'ts. Don't ask why me. Don't expect sympathy. Don't bellyache. Don't keep accepting condolences. And don't blame others. All good stuff right there. Alright, so now he's talking about, this next section is about kind of organizations and you know, the organization as a whole. He goes, this is consistent with my conviction that an organization is not just a tool like a shovel, but an organic entity that has a code of conduct, a set of applied principles that go beyond a company mission statement that's tacked on the wall and forgotten. In fact, we had no mission statement on the wall. My mission statement was implanted in the minds of our people through teaching. You must know what needs to be done and possess the capabilities and conviction to get it done. Several factors affect this, but none is more important than the dictates of your own personal beliefs. Collectively, they comprise your philosophy. A philosophy is the aggregate of your attitudes towards fundamental matters and is derived from a process of consciously thinking about critical issues and developing rational reasons for holding one particular belief or position rather than another. So first part, we're talking about the 
you know, the org and organization being, you know, it's a living, breathing thing with people that, you know, your, your mission, your goal, your everything in an organization is you got to implant it in the minds of the people so that they live it. And that's done through you. So you're, you're the one, your personal beliefs, if you're the head of that organization, are the one, is the, you're the one who kind of sets that standard and is responsible for planting all that in the minds of your, of your employees, of your colleagues, of everybody. So now how do you do that? How do you go on creating, setting that standard and creating that organizational organizational culture? So he had, Walsh had what he called his standard of performance. And that's kind of the overall philosophy, the blueprint, if you will, that he used to get things get things done kind of the the overarching theme of of their success or and and their organizational mindset if you will is this thing right here the standard of performance that Walsh set and we're going to go into what it is in a minute but that's that's the, his key is the standard of performance everything flows from that he's sets his expectations of what he expects from the organization, and that dictates everything that they do. All right, so here we go. My standard of performance, the values and beliefs within it, guided everything I did in my work at San Francisco and are defined as follows. Exhibit a ferocious and intelligently applied work ethic directed at continual improvement. Demonstrate respect for each person in the organization and the work he or she does. Be deeply committed to learning and teaching, which means increasing my own expertise, be fair, demonstrate character, honor the direct connection between details and improvement, and relentlessly seek the latter. Show self-control, especially where it counts most, under pressure. Demonstrate and prize loyalty. Use positive language and have a positive attitude. Take pride in my effort as an entity separate from the result of that effort. Be willing to go the extra distance for the organization. Deal appropriately with victory and defeat. Adulation and humiliation. Don't get crazy with victory nor dysfunctional with loss. Promote internal communication that is both open and substantive, especially under stress. Seek poise in myself and those I lead. Put the team's welfare and priorities ahead of my own. Maintain an ongoing level of concentration and focus that is abnormally high and make sacrifice and commitment the organization's trademark. So that's his standard of performance. Then he goes on to say, these are also the basic characteristics of attitude and action, the new organizational ethos I tried to teach our team, to put our into our DNA. Of course, for this to happen, the person in charge, whether a head coach, CEO, manager, or assembly line foreman, must exhibit the principles, code of conduct, and behavior he or she is asking others to emulate. So his standard of performance here is, is very clear. 
and lots of great points in that one paragraph. Great, really a great blueprint for how to conduct yourself. And whatever your standard of performance is, and that the last paragraph after he lists out what his standard is, is probably the most important part. That the leader of the organization, whoever it is, must live those principles and that standard that he's asking everybody else to do. And, you know, it, it's just classic lead by example, you know, way of doing things. Uh, if you want people to follow you and follow your standard, you have to do it yourself. It starts with you. You're the one who's, who sets the example, right? So set your standard of performance, find what it is specific to yourself and to your, your own organization. Um, I mean, if you wanted to copy what Walsh said in here, you could go wrong with that. There's a lot of great stuff in here. A lot of things that we've, we've talked a lot about, you know, using positive language, um, being even keel, you know, not getting too high with winning or too low with defeat, focusing on continual improvement separate from, and continual improvement and effort as a, that's separate from your result, because like, you know, you're not going to win every single time. But if you keep putting in that effort and work and show continual improvement, stack those little wins on top of each other, it's going to work out in the long run, 100%, right? You just got to be patient, like we talked about last week. So lots of good stuff in that paragraph. I mean, if, if you just take that one thing out of this book, you know, that, that'd be... That'd be great. But there's, as you will see, there's a lot more great stuff in here. But anyway, the main point, standard of performance is important. But what's more important is that you, in, you as a leader, are the, is the, you're the one who is living, breathing, you know, that's your, your standard of performance is your essence. That's what's most important to you that's it's not it's who you are you know you're living that out and then others will do it too all right next thing so this chapter he's talking about the fundamentals of leadership so he said Walsh says in every leader's work there are times when you must coldly evaluate the path down which you are taking your organization in my own work the Tulane experience was valuable because it was an example of persisting for the wrong reasons the lesson i took from it was this a leader must be keen and alert to what drives a decision a plan of action if it was based on good logic sound principles and strong belief i felt comfortable in being unswerving and moving toward my goal any other reason or reasons for persisting were examined carefully. Among the most common faulty reasons are, one, trying to prove you're right, and two, trying to prove someone else is wrong. Of course, they amount to the same thing and often lead to the same place, defeat. Really good lesson right there. 
Um, you know, you want your reasons for going forward to be based on good logic, sound principles, and strong belief. That those are good ways to to move toward your goal. But what's what is not a sound principle or good logic is one trying to prove you're right or trying to prove somebody else wrong. A lot of times that will lead, as he says, to the same place, defeat or failure or whatever it is. Next, next passage. <clears throat> a leader must have a vision, which is simply an elevated word for goal. Significant time and resources will be applied to achieving that goal. Therefore, it is of paramount importance that you proceed and persist for the correct reasons. Your tactics must be sound and based on logic, seasoned with instinct. If I led our team down the road to failure, I wanted to make sure the quality of my reasoning was very solid. If we went down, I wanted to go down for the right reasons. That's tough enough to take, but what is toughest of all, what is inexcusable, is to fail because you are unwilling to admit that your way was the wrong way and that a change of course is your only path to victory. So that's kind of where, you know, that last sentence there is, that's really kind of when your ego is getting in the way, where you think, you know, you thinking you're the smartest person in the room, regardless of what room you're in and that your way is the best way and the only way, even if it's not working. And then you keep trying to prove that your way is the right way, and you just, you know, you don't get anywhere. And, you know, you got to be able to, if, if, if something doesn't work, you got to be able to admit that your way is wrong, and you got to be able to change course. You know, that's, that's humility, which is an important characteristic of, of leadership, in my opinion. All right, next passage. Few things are more painful for a leader than losing because your reasoning is faulty, your conclusions flawed, your logic skewed by emotions, pride, or arrogance. One of the great leadership challenges is to recognize when hubris has you in its grip before it's too late to change. Here's a short checklist worth keeping in mind when it comes to persevering to doing it your way at all costs. One, a leader must never quit. Two, a leader must know when to quit. Three, proving that you are right or proving that someone is wrong are bad reasons for persisting. Good logic, sound principles, and strong belief are the purest and most productive reasons for pushing forward when things get rough. So, a... So the next passage goes on to kind of explain or, excuse me, what I just read goes on to explain what we talked about in the previous paragraph. So, you know, how, when, you're, when you're in a leadership position, it can be, especially, <clears throat> you know, the higher up you go, you know, it can be hard, like he says, hard to recognize when hubris or arrogance or pride has you in its grip before it's too late. You know, you've got to be cognizant of that and understand, you know, the most important thing is not doing it your way, it's doing it the right way. And the right way that's going to lead your organization to success. So, you know, be be conscious of that. That's very important to recognize that. All right, next thing. 
This is from the same chapter about his fundamentals of leadership. So these are his 12 habits for, for being a leader, an effective leader. So to the book. A defining characteristic of a good leader is the conviction that he or she can make a positive difference, can prevail even when the odds are stacked against him or her. A successful leader is not easily swayed from this self-belief, but it happens. When you fall prey to the naysayers who eagerly provide you with all the reasons why you won't succeed, why you can't win, and why you should quit, you have lost the winner's edge. When that happens, the game is over regardless of your profession. In addition to expertise and knowledge of the specific competitive environment, I believe a leader must also have certain habits, to use a word popularized by Dr. Stephen Covey, sorry, I probably didn't need to read that, I don't know who that is, that contribute to his or her effectiveness that create and cement his or her winner's edge. In my view, a truly effective leader must be certain things. They are, here are 12 habits I have identified over the years that will make you be a better leader. One, be yourself. I am not Vince Lombardi. Vince Lombardi was not Bill Walsh. My style was my style and it worked for me. Your style will work for you when you take advantage of your strengths and strive to overcome your weaknesses. You must be the best version of yourself that you can be. Stay within the framework of your own personality and be authentic. If you're faking it, you'll be found out. Two, be committed to excellence. I developed my standard of performance over three decades in the business of football. It could be just as accurately been called Bill's prerequisites for doing your job at the highest level of excellence vis-a-vis -vis your actions and attitude on our team. My commitment to this product, excellence, preceded my commitment to winning football games. At all times, in all ways, your focus must be on doing things at the highest possible level. Number three, be positive. Maintain an affirmative, constructive, positive environment. Now there's a, obviously he says, a place for highlighting negative aspects of a situation, but you know, you don't want to do it just to vent and make a barrier between you and other people. So create a positive, encouraging environment. Four, be prepared. It says, good luck is a product of good planning. Work hard to get ready for expected situations. Events you know will happen. Equally important, plan and prepare, prepare for the unexpected. Number five, be detail-oriented. Organizational excellence evolves from the perfection of details relevant, relevant to performance and production. Number six, be organized. A symphony will sound like a mess without a musical score that organizes each and every note. Great organization is the trait great organization is the trademark of a great organization. So be organized, be disciplined. Number seven, be accountable. You know, you don't want to excuse making is contagious. You don't want to make excuses. And you know, accountability and answerability starts with the leader. If uh, you know, if the leader starts to make excuses, then everybody else around him is going to start making excuses too. No finger pointing. All right, number eight, be nearsighted and farsighted. Keep everything in perspective 
while simultaneously concentrating fully on the task at hand. All decisions should be made with an eye toward how they affect the organization's performance, not how they affect you or your feelings. All efforts and plans should be considered not only in terms of short-run effect, but also in terms of how they impact the organization long-term. Number nine, be fair. 49ers treated people right. I believe your value system is as important to success as your expertise. Ethically sound values engender respect from those you lead and give your team strength and resilience. Be clear in your own mind and as to what you stand for. And then, most importantly, stand up for it. Stand up for what you believe in. Number 10, be firm. Be firm on your core values, standards, and principles. Number 11, be flexible in adapting to changing circumstances. All right, so those two things are important. You know, be, be firm in your values and your standards, but be flexible in, uh, in adapting to changing circumstances. You know, you can't be rigid in that way because you're going you're gonna to run into different problems and different things all the time. All right, number 12, believe in yourself. To a large degree, a leader must sell himself to the team. That is impossible unless you exhibit self-confidence. And number 13, so this is the, those are the 12 habits, and then the plus one is, lastly, be a leader. Whether you're a head coach or CEO or sales manager, you must know where you're going and how you intend to get there, keeping in mind that it may be necessary to modify your tactics as circumstances dictate. You must be able to inspire and motivate through teaching people how to execute their jobs at the highest level. You must care about people and help those people care about one another and the team's goals. And you must never second-guess yourself on decisions you make with integrity, intelligence, and a team-first attitude. So those are the... His 12 habits for being a leader. All, all great stuff. Um, all very important. All right, so this next section. So in, number five was be detail-oriented on the, um, the 12 habits. This next, this next paragraph that I'm going to read is about what details to, to sweat and which ones not to. So you have to be detail oriented, but you need, but they have to be the right details. So we go, he's going to talk about, uh, this is the example, um, Walsh gives. So he says, coach George Allen was a demon on the details as head coach of the Washington Redskins. He was preparing to face the Miami dolphins in super bowl seven at the LA Coliseum. A few days before the game, he sent a staff member out of the to the Coliseum for an entire afternoon to chart the movement of the sun during the hours when the game would be played. He wanted to know exactly where it would be so he could calculate the sun advantage if the Redskins won the coin toss. This is an example of sweating the right small stuff. Later, in a turbulent and brief tenure as head coach of the Los Angeles Rams, George supposedly took time off from his coaching responsibilities to design a more efficient system of serving food, a way of reducing the amount of time players spent in the lunch line. He took time out of his jam-packed schedule to personally draw up a schematic for those players wanting soup with their meals. One line was designated for those wanting crackers with their soup, the other for those who didn't want any crackers. This is an example of sweating the wrong small stuff. Owner Carol Rosenblum fired him before the regular season even began. I should note that while George wasn't fired for designing a crackerless line, 
it may have been symptomatic of what he was doing, sweating the wrong details. And so he says, what, what this is, is when you're sweating the wrong details, he calls that an escape mechanism, a method of distracting yourself from the tough work ahead. So when you're, you know, being detail into being detail oriented is huge. It's important. It's vital, but it's got to be the wrong, the right details. You know, if you're sweating the small stuff, the wrong small stuff, it's just a way he says of his, it's an escape mechanism. You're just distracting yourself from what you need to do to get ahead. So he gives here to 10 additional nails that you can pound in your professional coffin. So these are things to avoid. So exhibit patience, paralyzing patience, engage in delegating, massive delegating, or so too much delegating or too little delegating. Act in a tedious, overly cautious manner. Four, become best buddies with certain employees. Five, spend excessive amounts of time socializing with superiors or subordinates. Six, fail to continue hard-nosed performance evaluations of long-time tenured staff members, the ones most likely to go on cruise control to relax. Seven, fail to actively participate in efforts to appraise and acquire new hires. Eight, trust others to carry out your fundamental duties. Nine, find ways to get out from under the responsibilities of your position to move accountability from yourself to others, the blame game. And 10, promote an organizational environment that is comfortable and laid back in the misbelief that the workplace should be fun, lighthearted, and free from appropriate levels of tension and urgency. So those are 10 things he, Walsh says, to avoid in addition to sweating the wrong details. All right, so the next section is called Good Leadership Percolates Down. Part of the same chapter, but Good Leadership Percolates Down. So, again, you know, everything's going to start with you, you the leader. Uh, and it all trickle down from there. So you have to set the standard. It, it's like you're being a, a bucket of, it's like a, a, a pyramid of buckets, right? You fill the first bucket with water and it'll once it you keep filling it up and once it overflows it's going to trickle down to the bottom so it all starts with you so it says ideally you want your standard of performance your philosophy and methodology to be so strong and solidly ingrained that in your absence the team performs as if you were present on site they become so proficient highly mobilized and well prepared that in a sense you're extraneous. Everything you've preached and personified has been ingrained and absorbed. The roles have been established and people are able to function at a high level because they understand and believe in what you've taught them. That is, the most effective and productive way of doing things accompanied by the most productive attitude while doing them. Fundamentally sound actions and attitudes are the keys. So, ideally, what you want, you want your standard of performance that you've set to be so strong, so ingrained in your organization that you don't even need to be there for them to do the things that they need to do. They already know. It's part of the culture. Culture is, you know, the leader's responsibility. So when people get there, even if you're not there, you they know that they have to do their job. You know, that's the mark of a really great leader is that 
he can the, the team can function well in his or her absence. And he says, Walsh says, this is extremely important because an organization is crippled if it needs to ask the leader what to do every time a question arises. You know, you you don't want you don't want that. You don't want everybody to have to come to you right when you know whenever there's a question because that's going to be that's going to distract you from the things that you need to be doing. So you want people to be able to, you know, that they know what know what they need to do so that they can they can just do it. It's like a it's like a bodily function almost. They know what it's so ingrained that they know what to do. So your ultimate goal, Walsh says, you hope your ideas and way of doing things become so strongly entrenched that the organization performs as effectively as without you as with you. That's the goal, which is what we were just talking about before. So that's the goal. And, and that's what happened when the, uh, the 49ers, after Walsh left, won, continued to win and continued to be great and win championships uh, with Walsh's successor, George Seifert. I'm not, I can't remember if they won one or two after Walsh left, but they did win. They won when he, when he was gone, which is the mark of a good leader. He built up that culture and his standard of performance went throughout the whole organization so that even once he left, once he retired, they continued to do the same things at the same level of excellence. And so, um, Back to the book, Walsh says, this is a reliable indication of an effective leader, namely one who creates a self-sustaining organization able to operate at the highest levels even when he or she leaves. The responsible leader of any company or corporation aggressively seeks to ensure its continued prosperity. It's the mark of a forward-thinking leadership. A strong company that goes south after the CEO retires is a company whose recently departed CEO didn't finish the job. If everything goes great when you're around but slows or stops in its tracks when you're not there, you are not fulfilling your responsibilities. Your leadership has not percolated down. So that's one of the most important things, like we've been saying this whole kind of segment, the most important thing you can do as a leader is to have your leadership, your culture, your standards percolate down so that the whole machine is more than just you. And once you, when you're not there, if you're on vacation, it works. Or you leave to move on to something else, it still works. That's the mark of a good leader. All right, next section. So now he's talking about, this is again in leadership, um, talking about inspiring his team or inspiring your organization. And the, the leader, you know, kind of helping the members of the organization with their self-talk and with their inner voice, inspiring them. So he says, for members of your team, you determine what their inner voice says. The leader, at least a good one, teaches the team how to talk to themselves. An effective leader has a profound influence on what that inner voice will say. The great leaders in sports, business, and life always have the most powerful and positive inner voice talking to them, which they, in return, share with and teach to their organization. The specifics of that inner voice vary from leader to leader, but I believe they all have these four messages in common. Number one, 
We can win if we work smart enough and hard enough. Number two, we can win if we put the good of the group ahead of our own personal interests. Number three, we can win if we improve and there is always room for improvement. And number four, I know what is required of us to win. I will show you what it is. So again, that, that last point is what we talked just talked about before is leadership percolating down. I'll show you what, what's required for us to win. I'm going to set the standard. And uh, you know, you as a leader, and he's, he talks about great great leaders in all walks of life and all across all industries and endeavors, they have a powerful and positive inner voice. You know, they're they're the story that they tell themselves is is positive and and powerful. And if you have that as a leader, again, this is about leadership percolating down. What he's talking about is you need to take that confidence, that inner voice, that positive self-image and self-talk that you have for yourself and percolate that down to your team, right? Vitally, vitally important. We want, you know, you're setting the example and that's, that's just another example of you setting an example. Uh, you know, helping the others in your organization with their own self-talk. And then he goes to talk about Joe Montana, one of the great coach quarterback relationships in NFL history, Joe Montana and Bill Walsh. So he goes and talks about um, Montana's leadership style and how Montana led by example. He was always cool, calm, and collected. And Walsh says, he says, Joe Montana's leadership was grounded in this key characteristic. Despite the fact that he was a starting quarterback, which with all of the trappings that come with that position, he never played favorites or believed that a person's reputation, status, or credentials entitled him to special treatment. When you worked with Joe, you were treated as an equal. There were no stars in the Montana system, including Joe Montana. That corny old cliche, one for all and all for one, could have been written with him in mind. His leadership skills were demonstrated more by behavior on the field or in the locker room than by what he might say just before or during the game. Joe's interaction with other players and coaches was democratic, sincere, and understated. He led with his own talent, quiet confidence, and unassuming demeanor. Joe didn't have to talk the talk because he walked the walk. And without really working at it, he found that everyone else was walking the walk right behind him. What he did and the way in which he did it offers a great model that is applicable in any setting. Joe Montana is one of the best examples I have ever seen that proved you don't need to shout, stomp, or strut to be a great leader. Just do the job and treat people right. Isn't that an essential element in getting people to trust and follow you? So... He's talking about it again. Lead by example.
It's contagious. Lead by example is contagious. You know, that's that's going to be the mark of, you know, you don't need to you don't need to bark and holler and be like a drill sergeant in order to be a great leader. I mean, there I'm sure there are great leaders who do that, but the most important element of leadership and he illustrates it with Joe Montana is treating people fair and setting the the example. You know, that he talks about Montana. He said Montana didn't have to talk the talk. He didn't have to bark at anybody because he walked the walk. And without really trying, you know, people pick up on this. So you don't have to, you know, when you're just set set an example and find that, you know, people are going to follow that. And once... Since Montana walked the walk, he found out that everyone else would walk the walk right behind him. So if you set the example, that's, you know, if you're good at it, it's going to have that trickle-down effect like we talked about before. And, uh, you know, you need to, you lead by example and other people are going to follow you. Don't, don't bark and talk about and look for an example, you know, be, be the example. You know, like that when we talked about with uh, meditations and Marcus Aurelius saying, stop arguing about what a good man sh should be and just be one. Same thing. You know, don't talk about what a good leader should be. Be one. And other people are going to follow you. Right? So, very, uh, very important. So, he talks about, uh, you know, Joe Montana's leadership style. Example of doing your job, treating others with respect, expecting people to do their jobs, and holding them accountable is a formula for success that will work with any good organization. So, that, there's so much good stuff in this book, we will turn it into a two-parter. Uh, so we'll go over the second half of it next week. But, um, lots, I mean... Uh, this there's so much great information in this book you know a lot of it is you could do you know you could pro i could probably read this book word for word over this podcast that would take way too long and i'm sure that would be boring for all of you so i won't do it i'm just going to go over the highlights but um you know i've only covered the first half of this book and we've already got gone over a ton of of great gems so I encourage everybody to go out and pick up this book. We'll go over the second part of it next week. Uh, the score takes care of itself. Um, so lots of good uh, good nuggets there on leadership. You know, the, and the, what's the, over, the overarching theme, important theme, is leading by example. You know, find your standard of performance and then live it lead it and it will have that trickle down effect so very very important to lead by example and uh, kind of create that culture and standard you want for your organization so that is it for this week thank you to everybody for listening I love you all I appreciate it uh, if you want to connect with me on the social medias Instagram best place to do it I am at read underscore Ebersole R-E-I-D underscore E-B-E 
E-R-S-O-L-E. Uh, give me a follow. Hit me up with any questions you have on there. Let's connect. Um, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Uh, it is also on Google Play. Uh, just Google Play and Apple Podcasts right now. Uh, we'll work on getting it on all the other formats. Um, if you like it, please leave a five-star review. Um, I would love that. I'd appreciate that. And, uh, yeah, connect with me on Instagram. Also, we've got the Fired Up for Monday playlist on Spotify. Some of my uh, favorite uh, songs to get me fired up. It's a lot of rap, some rock and roll. I'm a big rap guy, so there's going to be a lot of stuff on there. But my favorite songs for getting me fired up and getting into the right mindset. So thank you to everybody for listening. Have a great week. Kick ass. Take names. Be good. Lead by example. And we'll talk to you next time. Later.